Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the third in the Council for Higher Education Accreditation International Quality Group webinar series. Today we're focusing on higher education quality and the future. What do we need to do going forward and, and how do we do it well? It's my pleasure to introduce Demenka Uvelis Trumbish, Senior Advisor for International Affairs for CHIA and our moderator for today's webinar. Stemeka? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're coming from. We have had, we have some 700 participants registered for the seminar, so welcome to all of you from me as well. I hope you're all well wherever you are, and uh, it is nice to be able to communicate with you. As Judith said, this is a, the third in a series of webinars, and it's focused on a theme that is preoccupying us all, and uh, what is uh, the academic world and higher education going to be like in the future, in the next uh, half of the year 2020, because that's a big unknown. And uh, to discuss what do we need to do and how to do it in the best possible way. There are different approaches around the world. Some uh, universities and colleges will stay online for the whole academic year. Other will combine online with, uh, uh, with on-campus uh, teaching. But how will this be done? Now, this is what uh, the objective of this webinar is, to discuss these issues. And we'll focus on two different uh, topics, I mean, different uh, complementary topics. The first one will be on setting the scene, and the second one will be on discussing uh, what are the quality issues linked to this. We're very pleased to have a great panel of speakers. Uh, uh, most of them, or the majority of them, are on, uh, experts in online learning. Uh, we have Tian Belawati. Hello, Tian, who is professor at Universitas Terbuka, but she's also the former rector of this open university in Indonesia. She's both a researcher and a practitioner. Then we have Neil Butcher, who's the director of uh, Neil Butcher and Associates, but I've known him in many different functions in the uh, South African Institute for Distance Education, but also in OER Africa as an expert of the World Bank, expert of UNESCO. Then Judith Eaton, uh, president of the Council for Higher Education Accreditation, CHIA, who brings in her well, she's the host of this meeting, she's the president of CHIA, but she has a long, long track of over 20 years uh, leading this uh, organization, which is based in the U.S., but has an international, international arm. So this is uh, why we have speakers from all around the world. And then Richard Garrett, who's uh, the chief research officer at EduVentures, but also the director of the Observatory of Borderless Higher Education. 
he also has, uh, well, so he's a researcher. He is, uh, deals mainly with online learning, but he also has an experience in the Quality Assurance uh, Agency of the UK, which is his home country, although he lives in, in the US now for many years. So um, now, um, shall we move? So the focus will be on two issues. And, uh, and Richard, in an article that he has written, has inspired us, Richard Garrett, to, uh, to reimagine the future, you know, how do we go about uh, organizing, what impact this is going to have on reopening or not reopening in, in the future. What are colleges and universities, uh, will they open or offer cl classes online only? Uh, there are different uh, approaches around the world. Uh, and we need to focus uh, how will higher education serve students in, in the second half of this year, but this might be much longer. And uh, how will quality uh, and the quality of the experience is central and what are the major challenges? So, well, so we then start with the question one, with the question one, Joel. How um, planning for, for the future? And may I invite you uh, Neil Butcher from South Africa to take to speak to us first for about five minutes. This is going to be more of a con conversation than a series of uh, than a series of uh, presentations. I just wanted to say uh, for our participants to use the chat box as I see you already are. Uh, rather than the quality uh, question and answers one so that we can uh, discuss with you so uh, so that we can answer your questions okay so Neil the floor is yours uh, thank you very much Tameka and hello everyone um, just looking at the chat facility to watch people introducing themselves I see that we've got people from a number of different countries uh, and I have, despite being desk-bound in uh, Johannesburg in South Africa for the last 10 weeks, um, have been fortunate to be engaging in project work uh, in countries across Asia, uh, in Eastern Europe, um, across Africa, and several other contexts as well. And I think the first response that I would give to the question is that it's clear that con different contexts are really just radically different. But what we are seeing, I think, very clearly from the emergency remote teaching responses of institutions around the world is that they are following a fairly clear pattern uh, that mirrors the digital divide as we've understood it in recent times, which is that those institutions that are better resourced uh, and those students who have access to better technology in general have been able to move much faster in shifting to online learning as a short-term strategy to deal with uh, the campus shutdowns. Uh, in many institutions and then also in countries where those resources are scarce, the response has been much slower and in some cases almost uh, non-existent. I think as we look forward, what that suggests is that it's very difficult to come up with a one-size-fits-all answer to the question that's posed here. Um, but I would offer a couple of observations based on what I'm seeing institutions having done. 
Um, the first thing that I would say is that I think institutions in general are responding in a way that's quite typical of human behavior, that they're overestimating the short-term consequences of what's happening uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic um, and underestimating the long-term consequences. So as a consequence, the vast majority of their efforts are driven by a sense of crisis. Um, and, and what I've seen mostly, uh, obviously, this is understanding that this is a very difficult situation for people, but mostly is, is a very frantic attempt on, on the part of institutions to try to replicate uh, traditional face-to-face -face educational experiences in some online form. Um, what that has tended to mean in my experience is that uh, academics and educators are very often overloading their students with too much work to do, particularly those who don't understand online learning very well, um, are, are pushing huge quantities of content and resources at their students, thinking that that will compensate somehow for the face-to-face -face experience. Uh, they're also creating what I consider to be incredibly complicated uh, and overwrought uh, educational designs online uh, in, in what seems to me to be quite a frantic effort um, to, to give students as much of the, the, the experience that they've lost out on in having been off campus. Uh, and I think that that's where that's happening, that's predominantly the wrong response. I think it adds quite significantly to the stress, stress load of students. And obviously the harder access is for them to the internet, the worse that stress becomes. Um, and so I would say that, that, that in general, um, the, the better solution is to recognize that in a, in a, in a few months, actually the impact are, on the educational journey of people is going to be somewhat muted if you think of their journey as a lifelong journey, learning journey. And I think this does reflect some of the problems still of educational institutions, that they're still tending to think of themselves as front-loading students for career, and they haven't made that shift to understanding that this is part of a long journey of learning that has to continue in the context of the fourth industrial revolution. Um, and so planning forward, because I think um, the second observation that I've seen is that people seem to think as if we're coming out of this crisis and, and in a few months, it's all going to have died down and settled down. I, I, talk, I see, for example, reading articles in The Economist, they talk about countries that have weathered the pandemic as if um, we're kind of coming to the end of it. I think the planning needs to be based on an expectation that in all likelihood, we're going to encounter second and third waves of infection. And that means that we're going to be faced with ongoing unpredictability about what's going to be possible when we start moving students back to campus. As a consequence, I think we need to be well prepared for the possibilities that we're moving on and off campus on a quite regular basis. Uh, and thinking less in terms of how we manage that over the next six to 12 months, and much more to the extent that we can about how that actually adjusts the way in which we ought to be functioning for the long term. Um, so what I would be encouraging institutions to do to the greatest extent possible, uh, particularly as, if they go into a recess period, is to be trying to think about what they've learned from the last three months and what it means for long-term structural change to how they function, rather trying to get themselves out of crisis mode, trying to get themselves into a pattern of understanding that this kind of unpredictability is going to be with us for some time, and that actually what it does is it opens the opportunity to change many educational practices for the better for the long term. Uh, I'll, I'll defer to, to Tian and, and Richard, who have much greater practical experience about what that might mean in practice. Uh, but but I, I do think we need to move out of this crisis mode, move much more into a long term planning trajectory that sees this as something that's going to be unpredictable and unstable for a long time to come. Uh, that seeks in the short term then to try to reduce the workload on the academics and educators and students and rather give us more time to prepare for that longer trajectory. 
Uh, and in, do, in doing that, the thing that I would say, if the single thing that I would most encourage people to do is to reflect back on what you were doing before the crisis started, which of the things that you were doing were actually essential for your students. If they weren't essential, just drop them now and rather focus. If that means that you cut half the curriculum for a year, I don't think that's going to cause long-term crisis. But I think trying to just, in a knee-jerk reaction, continue to do what was possible when you were full-time face-to-face with your students would be the worst possible response to the current unpredictability. And I think that as you do that, that will show the way to the things that we can let go of, not only for this period of crisis, but actually for the long term as well. Uh, because my sense is that in education systems around the world, we are spending a disproportionate amount of time and energy on things that are actually not delivering value to students. This is a perfect opportunity to think about what those are, to let go of them, and to come up with new models uh, that are both more cost-effective and more practical and suitable for students. Thanks. You are muted, Saminka. So thank you very much, Neil. Uh, this is a long-term process uh, we have heard you say, uh, but some of, of the participants uh, consider they have different opinions, but why don't we move to Tian and let her make her presentations? So thank you yeah. very much, Tamanka. Yeah, uh, and good evening from Jakarta, from Indonesia. Uh, and good day, good morning, good afternoon for everyone else. It's a, a pleasure for me to be here and to meet you all virtually, although it's only virtually, but I think it's good to have a meeting. Um, and uh, I think like everywhere in the world, um, this semester has been quite a semester for us in uh, higher education here in Indonesia. So please allow me to, uh, to talk uh, within the context of Indonesia. And as you know, Indonesia is a very big country. Um, we have uh, over 4,200 higher education institutions here in Indonesia. However, it's, uh, there is only one uh, open university, which uh, was uh, started as a conventional distance education university. Uh, and we have been operating for almost 36 years. Uh, and we have started the online learning since the late uh, 90s. So we have been doing online learning in Indonesia as the main provider of online learning for over 25 years. And over that years, uh, we have been trying to do a lot of advocacy and a lot of campaign about online learning. We try to invite and to encourage other higher education institutions to do online. But, you know, to my knowledge, only a few universities that actually jump into the wagon and start to experiment using online platform to enrich their classroom teaching. Uh, and in fact, I think to my knowledge, only one a private university that has started offering online learning uh, since some time ago uh, for credits. So other than that, it's uh, there's still nothing. So the open university is still the the main um, provider of online learning. But then, of course, you know, with the outbreak of the coronavirus, uh, things change dramatically, as in your area as well, I guess. Uh, and it only took less than 25 days, you know, since when the first case of the COVID-19 was announced by our president, and that was in uh, on March 2nd, uh, that 
no less than 800 universities declared and announced that they have moved their online, their courses, I mean their classes, into online. So, I mean, to me, when I read that news, it's so amazing because we've been doing that for more than 25 years and COVID-19 did it in less than 25 days. So to me, I think uh, COVID-19 has become the most powerful advocate for online learning. Uh, it, it, it has been really a real disruptor for Indonesian higher education practices. Uh, and of course, after that, all uh, schools and campuses were closed um, and everybody was forced to go into online. No time left, you know, for them to be panicking, no time left to do good preparation. They just do it. And uh, mostly they upload their course materials into LMS like Moodle or Google Classroom or some other LMS and uh, supplemented with lots, lots of Zoom meeting like what we have now. And so Zoom is very, very uh, popular. And I guess we contributed to a lot of income to Zoom company. Uh, so it's, it's like very chaotic, you know, the, the, the practice is still very chaotic. So I did a survey in early uh, April, first week of April. And within a week, I uh, managed to get uh, over 2000 responses from students and from lecturers and professors from all over the country. And although it's so chaotic, it is interesting to find that 75% uh, of lecturers, they seem to enjoy teaching online and they said they would like to do it again for next semester and beyond. Although they'd say that they maybe they don't want to do it for all the courses and they want to do it in sort of blended uh, mode. However, students, uh, they seem to be less enthusiastic. Only about less than 40% of our respondents, students say that they would like uh, to take online courses in the next semester. And I think this less enthusiastic response has to do with the most mentioned uh, problem that the students are facing right now, which is related to a quite expensive and uh, unstable internet connection. So that is the most uh, aspect that, is, that has been complained by the students. Um, and uh, the respondents of uh, my latest survey, 60% of them are first timer in online learning. But because this uh, online learning is the substitution of the classroom uh, learning, so they have to take three to six courses at the same time, and also the lectures. So it's quite overwhelming for them. First, they have to uh, uh, master the content. At the same time, they also have to master to operate the various platform and gadget that they are using, like more sporadically, you know, now the use of the gadget and also the platform. Um, however, I also must recognize that there are a lot of creativities arise, you know, within the situation from the lectures and they are quite encouraging actually. And I think uh, that is a sign of um, uh, eagerness from the uh, sides of the professors. Um, but, you know, regarding to our question, how will the universities uh, uh, do the learning in the next semester? I think for Indonesia, it is quite, uh, still quite unclear. Uh, the government has made announcement uh, about its policy on economy and businesses. For example, the state-owned enterprises, uh, they have started uh, reopen starting March uh, 25th and employees under 45 have been asked to come back and work from the office under 45 only. So we will be working from home because we are over 45, right? And um, 
uh, shopping malls, they said it will start reopen again, uh, start gradually starting June 5th. But so far, the government has not lifted up uh, the lockdown of universities and campuses. So I guess uh, campuses will be left with the options whether they want to open uh, full online, partially online, or even go back to campus altogether. Uh, when I talk to some of the president of the universities, I get the feeling that they have the attitude of wait and see. They are not sure either, I think. Uh, but the lecturers, they seem to be very eager. And uh, some of my colleagues, uh, I have a WhatsApp group, you know, con uh, consisting of like hundreds of uh, lectures from different universities. Uh, they are now already preparing uh, to, you know, preparing better um, uh, materials and everything for the next semester. And the Ministry of Higher Education itself also now preparing a course for lectures called Online Learning 101. As uh, Neil mentioned, that you know many of them are, you know, are, they are, they are, they don't know anything about online learning. Many of them, like thousands of lectures. So the Ministry of Education is preparing this uh, uh, online course uh, for. Um, it, they call it Online Learning 101. Uh, to better uh, prepare the lectures so that they could design uh, um, and deliver a more structured and um, high, higher quality online learning. Uh, so the Open University itself, of course, we have been also facilitating other universities. We have been providing uh, a lot of trainings. Uh, we have opened up our course materials to be used by other universities for free. And we have also made our LMS available for them to use under, uh, on a learning platform. And at this uh, pandemic time now, many internet providers also uh, uh, pro uh, promote or uh, give some uh, free access to certain uh, learning portals. Uh, not much, but uh, limited, you know. Uh, but I think uh, the major challenges for Indonesia, if we want to continue doing online learning fully or partially, will be the internet connection. We really do need a, a good and stable and affordable uh, internet connection. I think that would be the context of the first question for Indonesia. Thank you, Stamenka. So thank you very much, Tian. So let's go to Richard. Uh, we've heard uh, your messages and we'll have a discussion later. So Richard. Thank you, Stamenka. Good morning, everyone from uh, Georgia in the United States. Very pleased to be here. So let me start with some comments based on a report that I wrote in the US context, and that pertains to the slide that you see here. And then I'll also make some broader comments about the international situation, particularly from the point of view of countries that don't have rich world internet infrastructure like the US. So here in the US, like everywhere else, there's been this rush to emergency remote learning, unexpected, doing what you can to ensure academic continuity. But now the question here in the United States is, what's going to happen in the fall, as we call it here, when the new academic year starts in August and September. Here in the US, most institutions are campus-based, as they are everywhere else, and most traditional age students at least value that traditional campus experience, and online for them is at best a complement to an in-person 
experience. And so we have a situation where the institutions want to get back on campus as quickly as possible, financially, uh, from a teaching and learning point of view, from their perspective, they see that as the gold standard. Most students similarly want to get back on campus. That's the experience they want. That's what they're willing to pay for. But the unknown is, will that be possible? Will a socially distance campus experience really be practical or appealing? Or if suddenly there's a second wave in a certain part of the US or across the country, will that mean a rush again back to online? So what are institutions to do? They're, they're caught, they can't plan for one simple scenario. They have to, in effect, plan for multiple scenarios. What I did in this report that you see referenced here is point out some of the dangers. If institutions have a negative view of online learning and what I would call a fixed mindset, which means that online learning is what it is, it's inherently second rate in their view and no amount of innovation or rethinking or creativity will change that. I think the risk there is a disappointment, uh, to, to put it lightly, or even disaster for some institutions, uh, meaning if they, that they don't plan to do online learning well, if they regard it as inherently second rate, if they have to do it in an emergency mindset once again, rather than in a planned way, then you're going to have a lot lower tolerance for the experience we had over the last few months and you're going to have a lot of students either deferring, dropping out, uh, unhappy. The same for faculty members and instructors. There's going to be a lot of pressure around the level of tuition and many smaller institutions that are vulnerable financially will be in an existential crisis. And you can take different attitudes here. You can say, well, we may not think online learning is the best. It may not think it's as good as face-to-face, -face, but if we have a growth mindset, if we get creative, as Neil said, if we question what we do on campus, what makes sense online, then maybe you end up with something, a scenario that's at least adequate. Most faculty members, most students will tolerate. Similarly, if you have a positive view of online, but don't get particularly creative, you just do go, th go through the basics, go through the motions, then again, the result might be adequate. But I'd say none of those scenarios are really what we should be aiming for. We really need that top uh, right-hand quadrant, which is to say we must have a positive attitude to online learning. Online learning is a tool. It doesn't come with any inherent positives or negatives, just like with campus-based learning. It's a set of technologies, if you like, that you can use to good or you can use to ill. You can use appropriately, you can use inappropriately, depending on the circumstances and the objectives. And I think if institutions are really planned for every eventuality, if they're really to think long-term here, to think about their long-term health and sustainability, they really need to use these months, in the US at least, leading up to the next academic year, to really break some habits, think differently, and recognize what is possible with online, where you can 
sensibly and appropriately replicate the traditional experience, but also where you can do things that don't make sense in an online environment or where you can do things online that you couldn't do on campus. But unless institutions plan for that fully online scenario, you know, we all hope it won't be necessary, but I think there's a high likelihood that it will, at least for some institutions, then the risk is that their hopes and prayers for normality will be shattered and they'll be in an even worse situation than they're in at the moment, financially, educationally, and their entire existence will be threatened. So that's a US point of view. This assumes first world internet infrastructure in the US, most institutions, most students have the choice, have the option to study more or less fully online. But in much of the world, we know that's not the case. So I think the reality there, as the other two speakers implied, is that this kind of fully online option you know, using wired broadband uh, from home isn't a mainstream possibility. At the same time, many countries outside the world have decades of experience with other kinds of distance learning that develop all kinds of other technologies and, and use blends between certain kinds of uh, face-to-face -face and certain kinds of uh, technology. And I wonder if leveraging the expertise, particularly of the national open universities in many of those countries, to try and scale up a response that is commensurate with the nature of the country, its wealth, its infrastructure, and so on. And I think the, the challenge here, to Neil's point, is this an opportunity for a real breakthrough around what do we mean by higher education i think the opportunity is there but i think it exposes the the structural challenges to realizing that meaning higher education around the world is very decentralized very fragmented not only institution by institution but within institutions each academic department even down to each faculty member and lecturer has a lot of autonomy and in some cases really so but a pandemic requires a measure of coordination and centralization and even standardization that I think goes against the grain of the culture of higher education. And that's the real challenge is, can you use this opportunity to really arrive at a new compact between that decentralizing legacy and the needs of, of a situation that demands a much more rational approach to say, well, there's no point requiring every lecturer to come up with their own online courses and learn everything from scratch and do everything themselves. There really needs to be sharing here of expertise, of, ex of pre-existing content and courses, concentrate the precious resource of expensive human faculty on live teaching and learning, uh, not recreating mediocre content time and time again. So I think the opportunity is there, the need is there. I think the question is, is the pandemic predictable enough, long lasting enough, ultimately powerful enough to push that kind of massive cultural change? Or will we be here in two years time saying, you know, wow, remember that pandemic? Uh, it, all, it blew itself out in the end. There's a vaccine, things back to normal. I think that's just as likely. Thank you. Thank you very much, Richard. I'm sorry for this background noise. Judith, to you now. Okay, and, and thank you. Uh, thank you, Stamenka. As, as we're talking about uh, preparing for the, the future, it seems to me we have three major tasks. Uh, one of them is, is the planning part of, of this. 
and the other two are related to quality, establishing norms for the quality of this education, which may be different from current or prior norms, and judging based on those norms how, how effective uh, we have been. I'm going to concentrate right now on the planning preparing uh, piece of this. And the comments I have echo uh, a point I believe that has been made by Neil and by Tian and by Richard around mindset and how we are how we are approaching this. There's a, an old saying that all important decisions are made on the basis of insufficient evidence. And that's been around for a long time, but it's really been ringing in my head, especially over the, the past several months. We just don't know enough about the ultimate impact of COVID-19 to be sure about educational experiences or what we're designing. That said, uh, four things to share with you. Uh, first, uh, thinking other than, I believe is a real asset right now, other than in terms of how we analyze, other than in terms of what we might be willing to entertain as we reflect on what we need to do for students in the future. I mean, what's your least favorite uh, idea in higher education? Maybe it'll work now. Maybe you ought to, to rethink that. Uh, and then second, uh, moving forward, I think we need to get used to the idea that we may need to do everything twice. And by that, I mean thinking about effective on-campus education and remote education, whether it's developing the curriculum, whether it's designing classrooms experiences, whether it's providing for student engagement, or even uh, the kinds of degrees that we, that we offer. One prominent, highly respected uh, university here in the US, the president uh, said was adamant, it is uh, the duty of the university to open on campus uh, this fall. That said, he's also now saying that well, we may need some of this instruction to be remote. So we may have to do everything twice. I think it's likely we're going to have to do everything twice. Let's uh, second thought to keep in mind. Uh, third, uh, let's pay some attention to all the predictions out there. Not because they're accurate, but because they provide some insights. They provide some kernels uh, about what uh, we may have to deal with in, in the future. Uh, a few examples. Uh, I read yesterday that 750 to 1,000 universities in the United States are going to close permanently. I read last week that the big corporations, the multinational corporations affecting many of us uh, on this webinar will take over higher education. That's going to be driven by the extensive use of, of online learning. And we're going to be left with 50 big online institutions. Another prediction. Uh, another prediction I've read in many places, it is the end of traditional institutions. And especially the traditional liberal arts college, which is in the US at least, a mainstay of, of higher education. The arguments to keep liberal arts colleges and universities uh, is very powerful. 
but the, so the prediction goes, we're not going to be able to sustain them. And then related to that, their predictions about how governments will not support higher education going forward, especially public higher education, the resources simply won't be there and we will see further atrophying of higher education. Again, I don't think any of these things in their totality are going to come to pass, but it's worthwhile to reflect on these ideas because they help us understand and begin to develop the sense of how higher education is likely to be different in the future and what we need to do. And then the fourth thought uh, to share with you, this is an opportunity, as many people have said, as difficult as it is with all the enormous painful problems it has, excuse me, it has created. It's also an opportunity to bring some fresh eyes to long-standing problems. And Neil and Tian and Richard have already referred to the issue of inequality, the inequality of access driven by the inequality of availability of, of technology. That's only one inequality issue. Long-standing challenge of equity and diversity in higher education and doing more. The issue of student mobility and transfer of credit. And then candidly, the difficulty we have as educators focusing as much as, at least as I think we should on the issue of our performance and student success and student achievement. So yes, we need a different mindset. We're figuring out what that is. We need to be preparing and planning using an alternative mindset. And here are just some thoughts that I hope are helpful in reflecting on that. Thank you, Stemenka. Uh, thank you very much, Judith. Uh, so um, we've come to the, the so uh, based on uh, your presentations, several issues have been raised by each one of you, uh, uh, stating that it's a long-term uh, situation that we need to look at. Uh, is it an opportunity or a threat? Is it a disruptor or a facilitator was one of the questions. Uh, Judith raised that there are different predictions uh, about what the future is going to be like. These predictions are not new because we've been having uh, many predictions even before the pandemic about the traditional universities, you know, bricks and mortars or click and the click university. So, um, so what, what is going to happen, uh, uh, nobody can really tell, and it's different in, in all the different parts of the world. One of the, but I really did like, um, first of all, the, the results of the survey that uh, Tian shared with us about, the, because what we are now trying to discuss and talk about is this uh, um, quick, uh, shifting to online for traditional universities who did not have that experience before. So it's very useful to have your um, uh, feedback on that. And there were some questions, I'm sure that you have seen them already asking you for some, um, uh, some recommendations on, on that. Um, 
I also like the uh, compact that Richard mentioned about uh, this new compact about uh, you know decentralizing but also centralizing in situations like the one that we're facing now and how do we share expertise on that one of the big uh, one of the big challenges is really internet access, which is quite different around the world. So that's a big one that one needs to address. So why don't you start to uh, give us your opinions as panelists to some of these questions and uh, so how, how, what do you think about these issues and questions raised by some of our, uh, some of our Participants also to add a housekeeping issue that this video and uh, the outcomes of, of this webinar will be online and shared with you all. So um, to answer that question, which I forgot to mention at the beginning, so. So Richard, do you want to go first? Certainly, yes. So let, let me reflect on a few things. So I think one issue is that the term online learning, I think, speaks volumes about the challenge. I would argue that most to date pre-pandemic, most use of online learning has really not focused on the, the normal student in higher education. It tends to be the student who cannot access the traditional campus because either for financial reasons or because they are working full-time or they have family responsibilities. Whatever it is, online tends to take account of unusual circumstances rather than mainstream circumstances. What the pandemic is now forcing is a version of online learning that accommodates every student. And I would argue that online learning to date has been primarily about the, the academics of higher education. It's about the teaching and learning experience directly, and it's not about everything that goes on on a traditional campus that amounts to the traditional college experience, meaning extracurricular activities, both of an academic style, such as various kinds of work experience or service learning, or clubs, societies, is, uh, sports, all the, the whole social or residential dimension of higher education that still I think is, is seen as by many as, as the ideal and, and does in various guises capture the, the mainstream experience. So the, the challenge is how do we take conceptions of quality and online learning that were designed primarily for very non-traditional students, non-traditional situations, don't tend to pay much attention to that broader college experience at all because those students don't have time for it, aren't interested in it very often. And how do we come up with a version of online that doesn't really feel too thin and too narrow for those 18 to 21 year olds for whom higher education means so much more than the immediate classroom experience. And I think that that is both very difficult to conceive of because it's unprecedented. There's very few examples of versions of online that, that really have that breadth and range. And yet I would say that's what's needed if the average younger student is to really buy into 
the next academic year with the possibility that it may be remote or may suddenly go remote. And if it's just going through the motions, just the basic academics, with all the inconsistencies that we saw in the spring, in the US at least, then I think that's, that's a real challenging moment for, for higher education. So I think on the one hand, quality here, we've sort of had suspension of quality almost in the US. Accreditors have allowed institutions that don't have formal distance learning authority to nonetheless engage because of the emergency circumstances. And it's hard to see some sort of extensive new quality regime emerging anytime soon to manage a fall uh, online because again there'll be a sense of unprecedented circumstances and a need for flexibility and creativity and only I think in the future will we look back and realize well what happened where was their quality where was there not what do we mean by quality where did we impose outdated definitions uh, where did we come up with new definitions you know, we can't judge the outcomes by definition here. We're, we're only looking at the, the early inputs and, and something of the process. So again, I think it comes down to what I said earlier, is this, is this a moment to really rethink quality to make it more of a, a team-based and institutional activity in the interest of quality, student experience, cost control? I think that would be a rational approach looking in from the outside. But are institutions really sufficiently under pressure to make that kind of radical change as opposed to try and combine in this very unwieldy way the traditions of decentralization and faculty autonomy with a delivery mode that is unusual and unfamiliar? And I think, as Neil said, that's what's going on. You've got this marrying of these of this traditional culture with a non-traditional delivery mode, and that's seen as a sort of fair compromise. But is it actually a route to bigger problems, or will it will it seed connections and conversations that might create a more rational approach to quality if we're having to truly rethink long term what we mean by higher education and if the campus version of it is to recede in background rather than the foreground. That, that's a big if, but but I think these are the kind of dynamics that will that will ultimately dictate whether we have a new quality conversation or we just model through. Thank you, thank you, Richard. Uh, there were some questions, uh, and Tian, perhaps you could uh, reply to that about this interactive nature being you know, yourself, a professor uh, at, and with long experience with online uh, learning and the Open University, etc. There was a question which you might, may have seen about how to, pro how to be interactive through online learning. I think it comes from a somebody who is in a traditional uh, higher education institution. I can't find it right now, but it's somewhere. So what advice can you give in that respect? Yeah, well, you know, um, luckily now there are many tools that we can use to help us doing interactive learning, uh, even though it's uh, remotely. Um, uh, I, I read in the question, like, uh, for mathematics, for statistics, how do you do, how do you prepare, like, materials for those things and um, uh, provide students with very uh, interesting learning experience? And just coincidentally, like two months ago, maybe I was uh, 
I somehow ran into a, a website or a portal which uh, actually provide uh, a platform uh, for algebra and uh, uh, and just you know the statistical um, uh, courses where we can actually uh, do the problem solving and the simulation and students can do it themselves and we could also steer them so it's quite uh, interactive and uh, I don't remember the name of the site now and it's free uh, and I think uh, that is just one an example and uh, over here for the lower uh, level of education i sometimes are asked you know uh, is asked to also provide uh, you know uh, samples of uh, the open educational resources that are already available and of good quality uh, and some of them like uh, can even provide a simulation like real experimentation in the laboratory so there are many uh, luckily now there are many uh, learning resources that can be used by uh, uh, professors as well as teachers at schools to help them uh, increase the interactivity uh, in the online learning, especially the interaction between the learner and the content and uh, for the interaction between the you know the students and us as the educators and also among themselves of course you know the learning management system can assist you in that and also now with the interactive uh, video conferencing uh, that get uh, well to some extent it's a little cheaper than usual than before that can also help uh, but let me Samika, I also would like to share with you with regard to the standards, uh, you know, some, uh, I think was that now Richard was talking about the standards that we need for online learning. Just coincidentally, you know, Indonesia before even the outbreak of the coronavirus, we are in the process of developing national standards for distance education, including online education. And I'm personally involved in the, uh, in the, in the team that develops that for the lower level of education, not for the higher education. But the outbreak of coronavirus and the uh, experience that we are facing right now during this pandemic uh, time really helps us, you know, to to uh, to broaden our um, our perspective in developing the standards because before we think, oh, this is the ideal, you know, situation for all, uh, for distance learning at, at this. Uh, industrial revolution 450 it has to be online it has to be this it has to be that but now we are faced with the reality that uh, Indonesia for example is not ready for that all state-of-the-art technology based distance learning so we have to embrace all the generation of distance education technologies from the lowest uh, one like printed you know uh, until the maybe the most sophisticated one so this uh, past two months experience has, uh, I think, has enriched our understanding about the, uh, the scope of uh, uh, distance learning mode that we should embrace and include it in our uh, standards. Uh, so when we talk about quality distance learning, we should not like automatically jump into online learning and if it is not online it's not quality so i think that that is also a very big lesson that uh, that um, now we see because we don't want to see online learning as a substitution uh, of the classroom learning or classroom teaching without any uh, uh, you know um, any um, special design that really uh, optimize all the uh, value added that was uh, that is offered or uh, facilitated by the affordances of the technology so uh, I think in terms of norms and standards um, 
uh, it should be inclusive. That's what I want, uh, I want to say. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Tian, so much. Uh, Neil, would you like to react to what has been said uh, before we move to the quality assurance issue? Can you just uh, uh, answer some of the questions or raise, uh, just give your reflections on what you have heard and what has been presented? Thank you. Um, thank you. I've been trying to provide a few responses also uh, in the Q&A section yeah. of uh, the webinar. So, I won't uh, go into those sort of detailed issues. Uh, I think Tian and Richard have also done a good job of, of addressing some of the sort of practical uh, issues that are arising. That it, as I'm seeing the questions and also uh, listening to some of our responses, I, I do still think that, that what even this conversation is emphasizing is, is possibly the extent to which we haven't really comprehended the scale of, of the social uh, disruption that is happening at the moment. Um, and and uh, we're talking still very much in terms of how we can replicate an experience that existed for the last hundred years, uh, how we can ensure that the online learning tools are used to, uh, to achieve that. Uh, many people in the comments are talking about the challenge of the digital divide. And I would remind people that that challenge is not just one of access to technology, but, but it's actually an accumulated learning deficit uh, that, that many students have uh, experienced in their educational careers, which has made it very difficult for them to be able to study independently. So even if we provide them access to technology and free data and everything else, that's not going to resolve the problem in, in the short term that, that many students, particularly marginalized students, have, had, have not had access to an educational career or educational experiences that have prepared them for the kind of learning they're being expected to do now. Uh, and, and for those reasons, I, I would emphasize that although we don't know where this is headed, I think we can feel fairly confident that the scale of the economic crisis that is unfolding at the moment is of a kind that people my age, and I'm turning 50 this year, have not encountered in their lives to date. Uh, and what that's going to mean is that we need to start taking very seriously the challenge of responding in a fundamentally different way from what we've been doing up to now. Um, we're going to need to find much larger scale, much more cost-effective strategies to provide people access to education that is going to be able to help them to rebuild their social and economic lives uh, over the next five to 10 years. For me, many of the, the issues about in the short term, how we help people to deal with a lost semester, uh, as if that creates a lost generation, are, are missing the point. The lost generation is going to come um, if we don't deal with the long-term consequences of what is unfolding. And we're not going to solve those problems in 2020. Uh, so while I completely recognize that, that people at the coalface are going to have to deal with the ongoing short-term challenge of trying to keep things going to the greatest extent that we can, and I recognize the difficulty of this, uh, I don't want to sound trite when I'm saying this, we have to start investing our energy in dealing with what's coming down the pipeline. Uh, and that doesn't matter in my view which country we're in, because one of the things we've seen very clearly from this is that we're an integrated global society and the knock-on consequences, you know, Sweden may have kept their country open, but the economic consequences for them are not that significantly different from their neighbors that haven't. Um, and I think we're gonna see more and more of that as this unfolds. Uh, on the plus side, what this really does mean is we can attack some of the sacred cows of higher education. And when we come to start talking about the quality accreditation agencies, I think that's really where the biggest opportunity lies. So much of the quality assurance that we do at the moment is really about just adherence to old practices 
that actually are not delivering value, educational value to students who are needing to build uh, a new economic lives for themselves, life for themselves. And if we can just let go of that and focus on the far smaller band of quality issues that are actually critical, then I think we can do a massive service uh, down the line. Um, and obviously, what that will mean is having to go through those quality assurance systems and structures that we have in place. Our Council on Higher Education here in South Africa, for example, I think has something like 156 quality standards for programs. It's just not possible to assure quality with that many standards. We need to really strip them down to the 15 or 20 things that are most critical. Uh, someone's comment in the, in the notes said, what happens about a dichotomy of online and face-to-face? -face? I agree with that totally. We should make sure that our quality of standards standards straddle all of the different modes of delivery so that we're not forcing people into a pathway of distance or face-to-face, -face, online or blended, that, that we actually have quality assurance systems that are simple, agile, flexible, and enable us to respond fast to the crisis that's on the way. Um, and I sorry, I don't mean to sound overly uh, melodramatic in saying that, but I do think that if we can shift towards what's coming over the next five years and focus less on what's happening in the next few months, um, that's going to prepare our education systems better for what we're going to need to deal with. Thank you very much, Neil. Thank you. I think, Judith, this was a good introduction to you starting the second part of our discussion, unless you have some reactions, but that is part of this. I, I think you can do both. Uh, and let me remind you that Chia did deal with quality assurance of distance education, but that was quite a while ago. That was more than 10, 15 years ago, but it's not something that has not been on the agenda of uh, accreditation and quality assurance in many instances. So Judith, can uh, I give, invite you? Yes, thank you, uh, Stamenka. Um, I fully agree and what i have to say will reflect this with neil and and with richard about the need for a rethinking or a, a new conversation when it comes to accreditation and quality assurance uh, but before i get into that let me say that uh, not only in the united states but in many other countries quality assurance professionals have stepped up to the plate with regard to this pandemic and the shift to extensive use of online learning. They've modified their practices. They've continued their scrutiny. They've exercised considerable flexibility. They've set expectations. We had a, a question here about virtual accreditation. Some quality assurance and accrediting bodies are practicing that now and were practicing it before the pandemic. So I, I don't want to write off the work of accreditation and quality assurance to date. That said, uh, yes, if higher education is changing, whether we like it or not, quality assurance and uh, accreditation need to change as well. And uh, here are some items around uh, a framework for action, just trying to think this through. There's a short paper uh, that I did on this that is available and will we'll make available. Uh, but whatever the scope and significance of the changes, short and long-term in higher education, we in accreditation and quality assurance have to be prepared to stand behind the quality. 
of that work, and that means we have to scrutinize the quality uh, of that work. And yes, uh, both Neil and Richard said it in different ways. Uh, essential to doing that is to get beyond applying the longstanding standards and practices uh, for traditional institutions to new providers, new educational designs, new combinations of remote and, uh, and on campus, but to be rethinking the standards uh, and the practices for the emerging type of, of higher education um, that, that we are seeing around us. Um, the future is going to evolve. We are going to all be doing hit and miss with higher education and scrutiny of quality. And one day we'll look back and say, well, we made all these major changes, but we didn't start out with a clear rational plan for all those changes. We keep being reminded of this. They are going to develop over time and constant attention to quality is going to be part of that uh, development. And these are some of the major areas. There, there are more. Uh, I agree with Neil's point about how many standards do we have. This would certainly reduce the list considerably, standards in many different uh, quality assurance bodies. But these are the basics, I would argue, for higher education, the critical areas where uh, we need to rethink or reestablish norms for quality. And, and just a couple examples of what I'm talking about. Curriculum. How often are we asking, is the curriculum designed for both on-campus or remote education for them combined? How well are these various uh, curricula doing and working with students? The academic calendar. We have a lot in quality assurance in higher education about it's not quality unless there's enough time on task, there's a structured sequence of events and engagements of, of students. Well, we need more flexibility than that right now. How do we develop that flexibility of, of timing and engagement uh, and how do we decide what the norms for quality are there? And similarly, with regard to faculty and norms for quality. Uh, Neil said something at the beginning that I really would love to learn more about, but, but Neil said, talked about overwrought educational designs. If indeed that's what we have been doing in some cases, uh, how do we address that how do we decide what counts as quality of, of educational design? So if higher education is preparing, has to prepare for uh, a current and, and unpredictable environment, quality assurance and accreditation have the same task made up of a lot of different pieces. We do need a framework for action. We do need to, do need to be rethinking. We do need a fresh conversation. Thank you, Stemenka. You're on mute, Stemenka. Yeah, 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 yeah. I forgot to unmute myself. Can I just have a reaction from the other participants on, on quality assurance and accreditation? 
Richard, would you like to just give some of your thoughts, although you touched upon it? Um... Right. Again, I think it's it's tricky because there's there's no point agencies being heavy-handed at this stage because the, the situation requires dynamism and creativity and thinking on the fly and imposing standards as if, as if we know what they are and, and how to apply them makes no sense so i think in on, on in, in one way this is this is throwing off some of those um, constraints if you like and allowing institutions to experiment and only later will we figure out was it quality what do we mean by that so i i i, I suppose that calls for a partnership really between quality bodies and institutions where quality bodies are there to provide guidance and support and, and, and good practice, but also to, to learn and, and reflect. And perhaps out of this will emerge a, a leaner model to, to Neil's point, something that, that is more targeted to real student impact rather than you know, a lot of tradition bad inputs and processes and, and sort of bureaucratic paper-driven exercises but again I don't, I don't know that the that kind of change will be planned so much as it may be forced through just institutions not having the bandwidth to accommodate traditional quality assurance processes and uh, arriving at new formulations of, of quality th through necessity through through practice so I think we, you know, we know what a good quality online experience looks like, at least from the point of view of a non-traditional adult learner. I do think there are numerous high quality tools out there. As I said in my initial comments, online learning is, is just a tool. You know, let, let's not pretend it's inherently this or inherently that. There are, there are some fundamentals, but, but it's really like any tool. And ultimately, the, the traditional campus is just a set of technologies, a, a set of tools. They're just so familiar that we don't think of them that way. But uh, I, I think it's it just it just comes down to whether we're going to allow a thousand flowers to bloom, uh, and then stand back and try and figure out what was quality, or or whether we're going to really rethink quality from the point of view of inputs around you know, who's designing the courses. Does it make sense to design essentially a comparable course time and time and time again across countries, within countries, across institutions, within institutions? How do we factor in the efficiency of higher education as a quality input? That's typically missing from these conversations entirely. So I'm not expecting any sort of radical change anytime soon, but, but I do think when the dust has settled, there'll be lots of lessons learned and it'll be, this, it'll be the severity of the pandemic long-term that will dictate either real change or this will sort of be a blip and uh, many processes will return to normal. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. May the dust settle <laughs> sooner rather than later. Thank you. Uh, so, Tian, any last remarks about uh, quality, quality assurance um, from your point of view? 
Ah, you have a slide. Nice. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, before I go to my slide, I think I would like to uh, um, just emphasize what has just been said by Neil and Richard that, and also Judith, that, you know, um, online learning is learning. So the keyword is in the learning part, not in the online part. So whatever considered as a good learning applied to online learning, you know, except that maybe in online learning, there are some additional uh, considerations that we have to also uh, look at which is related to the use of the technology and media. So if in the traditional or conventional learning, we are only concerned with interaction between students and content, students and students and students uh, and instructors, in the online learning, we also have to look at the interaction and all the aspects that affect the interaction between the students and the system or the interface or the technology that are being used. So, and as uh, Neil, I think, mentioned that it's not the, the, the goal, it's the means, it's the tool. So we don't want to use any tool that would uh, take up more than necessary the time of students and the lectures just to master the technology itself. We want them to focus on the subject matter. So I think I just want to do that. So uh, online learning, uh, the goal is the same as learning. The principles are the same as the conventional learning, except that, you know, there is an additional aspect of the technology and the media and the system that are being used. So that is, I think, for like a more uh, long-term part. But uh, for the, the coming semester, uh, the question is what needs to be done for, you know, uh, quality learning, if it is online, quality online learning for the next semester. And as I mentioned, you know, the lectures, uh, I think, I mean, badly need to be better equipped, both, uh, both um, academically and technically. They need to have uh, uh, proper training on how to de develop and design a good online course on online materials. They need to be trained on how to become an effective online facilitator and moderator. And I think most importantly in, this, uh, in, the, in the time where we have ample learning resources available as OERs, they also, the literacy on OER also need to be enhanced. Uh, how to select and how to integrate the OERs into their own curriculum. Uh, I think they need to know that otherwise, uh, they are just going to use the, the usual materials that they use in the classroom and upload it in their LMS. And uh, they also need to be trained how to use the most appropriate technology and media to deliver their content and in, in, in accordance with the nature of the subject matter. Uh, not only from the point of view of the institution, but also the point of view of students. Students must have access to that media that is being used and easy, friendly to use. And on the student side, I think the most crucial thing now, the students also need to be trained on time management because they're not used to uh, studying independently without somebody spooning up, spoon, uh, spoon them up, you know, what to, what to do and when to do it and all the deadlines and everything. Now it's a little bit uh, freedom for them. So they need to be uh, trained on time management, on discipline, and also on ethics. 
because many lecturers are complaining about how students talk to them, you know, in the in the in the online platform, especially when they combine it with the WhatsApp platform. They think it's like in the social media, it's different. They have to learn about the ethics of communication in the online learning, I think. And for the institution, for the universities, most universities don't have internal IT infrastructure. So they need to develop it. They need also to recruit personnel with IT and uh, media competencies. Uh, and they also need to work on the reward system, the remuneration system. Many uh, uh, lecturers, you know, they are asking about this. What do we get for this extra work, especially if they're doing, uh, you know, um, uh, blended learning in the fall or in the next semester? And at a macro level, I think for Indonesia or maybe countries similar to Indonesia, the government really need to provide uh, good, uh, stable and affordable internet access throughout the country. Because without good internet access, it is very difficult to push online learning in, uh, to become a quality, uh, quality learning. And this is, for me, in Indonesia, that is the most difficult one. Because within the 35 years uh, working in the Open University, I have been witnessing how powerless is the government you know, to win this thing over the business and the providers. And I think especially in this time, you know, when the government has less money to spend on this, and when also the businesses, the internet providers are uh, in difficult time as well, I think. Thank you, Staminka. Uh, thank you very much, Tian. Neil, do you have anything else to add to the quality discussion? Very briefly, just in one minute, because we, or two minutes, because we only have 10 minutes left, and I would like to give Judith the floor. Um, so, so I'll just, uh, maybe with a limited time, I think uh, Richard and Tian have made great points that I, I won't repeat. Um, I'll just come back to the, the sort of central observation I, I'm trying to make, which in, in this case, in, in relation to quality accreditation agencies. Uh, and I've worked with quite a few of them around the world and engaged with quite a, lot, a few of the systems, both at institutional and at national level. And I would say that in general, unfortunately, quality assurance is now actually a drain on the institutional and on the financial resources of most institutions and most national governments that is not actually adding quality. And I think the reason is because we have proliferated such complex quality accreditation frameworks and systems that they've become almost impossible to implement. I would mostly lay the blame at the door of specialists and experts who feel compelled to keep adding more and more minutiae about how to control the quality of individual aspects of learning which in my experience is not operational if you're trying to uh, manage compliance to minimum standards and not helpful if you're trying to develop the quality uh, of education. So I think we need to split out very carefully the distinction between compliance with minimum standards, keep that as simple and straightforward and easy to execute as a quality accreditation process as we possibly can and make sure that it targets rooting out bad practice. And then we should shift the rest of the resources to develop mental processes that are not about accreditation and that actually focus on developing the capacity of educators and academics to wield the full range of educational resources at our disposal. This, what we've seen, I think, that comes through from the pandemic is that this ridiculous distinction between online and face-to-face -face education as if there are still meaningfully distinct modes of education just needs to be dropped. We're operating in a world and an environment where technology is ubiquitous. Our most fundamental problem, as we've spoken about at length, 
is the reality that for many students, access to that kind of educational opportunity is denied. And a large part of the blame must be laid at the door of systems and educational planners who are not making sure that the resources are targeted to solving that problem and who have instead built up these centralized bureaucracies that are getting in the way of quality. So I hope that if nothing else, this crisis provides the opportunity to unravel that bureaucratic mess and leave us with a much simpler, much more flexible set of quality accreditation processes that actually allows us to get education to people who need it most on the scale and of the quality that they deserve. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. So Judith, I think uh, this is a good entry point for you to respond that this is also this disruption is also an opportunity for quality assurance and accreditation to rethink itself and to uh, to react. So can I invite you to react and give some of your com comments to this? Well, first, um, I agree and it's music at least to my ears to hear some of what Neil and Richard are saying in terms of moving accreditation and quality assurance forward because I've, I've been long, long been arguing uh, personally for significant change in, in how we approach the scrutiny of, of quality. Uh, I do think that, as I said earlier, uh, the pandemic provides an opportunity to do this, to broaden, to become more radical in approach. And in my view, at the heart of scrutiny of quality is the performance of a provider and what happens to students. And we've had a number of comments and questions here related to student learning outcomes. The judge, the ultimate judging of the effectiveness of higher education, in my view, uh, is not whether it's online or on ground, and it's not how much money you have necessarily or how much structure you have. It is about what have students accomplished? What, what is our role in student in student success? Student achievement is the core is the core issue, and for those critical uh, areas that for the framework for action that I put up uh, a bit ago, the test of the effectiveness in each of those areas is evidence of student achievement at a level that we find the, our countries, the world finds acceptable, you know, what, what students do. I am hopeful, I'm not terribly optimistic, but I'm not pessimistic that going forward, uh, the pandemic will provide some opportunity here to, for all of us, I mean, accreditation and quality assurance are what they are in part because higher education institutions want accreditation and quality assurance to be a, as it is. So this is a task that involves all of us. And, and I'm hopeful that we will be forced by so much disruption and discomfort that we will be able to move in some of the directions that that Tian and Richard and Neil uh, are describing. Thank you. Thank you, Judith. So I think we are coming close to the close of this uh, webinar. We have a couple of minutes left. Uh, 
Uh, I think it was a fascinating discussion and maybe, uh, and it will be continued maybe through another webinar uh, organized by TIA or in, di in dif different other uh, fora or organizations. Uh, but we have raised, we have pinpointed the challenges, we have raised some of the issues. And there was uh, one, uh, was it in the, uh, in the previous, uh, in the previous webinar on a similar topic that there should be more interaction between quality assurance across the globe, as we're all in this together. And one of the participants said that uh, challenges seem to be pretty much the same wherever we're coming from, with the exception of the digital divide, which remains the main uh, the main uh, challenge for those who cannot access um, uh, internet. So I think maybe this is something that we have to think about and where uh, Chia and CIQG can play a role in the future. In the meantime, let me thank you for to all of you, for, first to the panelists uh, for your excellent presentations and uh, sharing with us your expertise. We hope we can rely on you for in, in the future as well, and for and, and this has a but also all the participants. We had close to 500, I see, and uh, what uh, is always very a great satisfaction is the interaction between the participants, which has been and the sharing which has been going on in the chat, in the chat. So. Uh, with that, I wish you to stay safe and uh, keep uh, uh, well wherever you are. And uh, let us see what happens in this long term, as uh, we have been well, we have been reminded that this is not just an emergency and short time solution. I personally have learned a lot, so thank you very much and. Uh, have a nice rest of the day or good night to those who have um, who are um, who have spent their evening with us